how are you enjoying the series so far? Awesome. I'm really enjoying um, slowly working through uh, this, this um, passage because sometimes when we just have topics that we have in mind, we bring to the Bible certain thoughts and certain things that we already want to see. And, and when we just kind of study a passage with less of an agenda of like, hey, you know, this is the way uh, I'm looking for a way to talk about faith, or I'm looking for a way to talk about love, but rather just allow the Bible to speak for itself. So much richness comes through. You know, I was, um, I'm nearly finished with um, this church history um, book that I'm reading. Uh, it spans a whole of Christianity, uh, the time since past till now. And it's really interesting how, you know, Christianity came from uh, basically a, a really persecuted branch of people all the way to becoming the empire. And then from there, kind of switching and then becoming uh, a real force in third world nations. And as each time things change, and there are people from different cultures, uh, different upbringing come and they read the Bible, they see different things. So I'm reading how, uh, you know, as, as Christianity shifted from, from the Western nations to, to Latin America, to Asia, to Africa, the theology from those places, um, the people who have different experiences added so much richness. You know, the church went from being, you know, this rich, powerful political organization, which there are good things and there are terrible things that happened in that time, but it shifted to really being a, a, a hope and a light to the world. And those people brought up the point of like, hang on, should Christianity be all about prosperity? Should Christianity actually be serving the masses? And all of these different thoughts all coming together. What I'm just trying to say is that sometimes we have our cultural lens. And when we come, even me, as I'm reading this, there is a certain cultural lens. Um, and, and so I hope that this is uh, something that you're working through yourself as you look through the Word. And, and if you disagree with me, that is totally fine. Uh, but search out the truth for yourself. The truth isn't something that is found within your emotional uh, self. Oh, that didn't sit right with me. I didn't like that. Well, you know what? That's not where truth is from. Because that is... That is an experience and that is still necessary and that is still a good thing to have but truth is something that we can come towards and really the Bible and John in particular tells us that the truth is Jesus. The word at the beginning was the word and the word um, was with God and the word was God. The logos truth can be found in Jesus. So as we start off um, this morning, as we uh, crank into the next section, let's just pray, hey? Let's ask that Jesus will be here and the Holy Spirit will be teaching us truth this morning for our lives. Uh, dear God, I thank you that, uh, uh, that you invite us with all of our experiences, all that we've gone through, all of our understanding, you still invite us to come and to taste and to see that you are good. We pray that as we unpack your word this morning, uh, that it would bring light and life to each and every single person. I pray that God that is not just going to tickle our ears, but is going to convict us. It is going to sit in us and, and gnaw at us until we come fully to you and, and, and surrender fully uh, to you, Jesus, because you are the one who has the words of life. You are the one who carries life and gives us grace. And so we come to you this morning and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we have got 16 verses to go through today, which is a very uh, big shift from the last um, week where we covered a lot of ground. But we're looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31. Uh, so just as a little recap, last week we spoke about how following Jesus is actually quite difficult. The disciples themselves who had experienced all the wonderful things that Jesus did still struggle. But Jesus tells them, hey, uh, don't worry, I am coming to you. Just hold Hold on in your belief, persevere in your belief, and I'm going to take you to this place um, that my father has, uh, my father's house, basically, where I'm preparing room for you. And then Jesus also says, but not just waiting for that moment to come, uh, but really, right now, you are going to be empowered to do greater things than I did, because I'm going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do, uh, because I want to glorify God. And we talked about the greater things, not being about more spectacular 
spectacular uh, or, uh, or, or sheer volume, but talking about the fullness of love uh, that Jesus wants us to live out, right? So that's last week. That's where we ended on that greater things verse. And John 14 verse uh, 15 starts off with this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And immediately we hit a verse that I think uh, modern Christians in our world gloss over a little bit or don't like. If you love me, keep my commandments. That sounds a little bit legalistic, shall I say? Sounds a little bit works-based, maybe you can say. But what is Jesus trying to say here? This is actually the first time Jesus in the upper room discourse, and he will go on to say this many times, but talk about the love of the disciples to him. And I think this is something that we need to recapture a little bit, because I think in Christianity, in our culture, we have talked so much about how God graces us, and his grace is wonderful, and grace is not something we work for, but it's something that is a gift, it's something we receive. We don't uh, deserve it, we haven't worked for it. You know that reckless love song, I don't deserve it, I didn't earn it. Still you gave yourself for me, whatever the words are. Uh, you know, they, they, those are the gospel uh, message captured in what Jesus has done for us. But what we also need to realize is that one-way love is not a relationship. You know, if I love Beck, but Beck never reciprocates, never does anything to uh, serve me or to even understand what I would like or, or if you will, my demands, then she's probably not a great spouse. If all she's doing in life is expecting me to serve her, that is a terrible relationship. It is not an enriching, it is not a healthy marriage. There is a two-way street. And so Jesus, in this verse, while it looks legalistic, he's saying, come on, guys, I want a relationship with you. I want to be your savior, yes. I want to be your Lord, yes. And I'm also your friend. And so we need to bring Savior and Lord together when we think about Jesus because he doesn't mince words here. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and uh, D.A. Carson, who we are going to quote copiously over this series because he's a wonderful theologian, he says that there is an uncompromising connection uncompromising. This is not something that you can just play around with. This is not something that you can tone down. This is something that the Bible is very big on. There is there's an uncompromising connection between our love for Christ and our obedience to Christ. These two go hand in hand. And so often, uh, I think we divorce them and we say we love Jesus. And how do I love Jesus? I love soaking in His presence. And I just love Jesus and is a wonderful and I know that he's died for me and I never want to leave this place. And then we hear Jesus saying, go and love someone else. And we go, no, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. No, there's uncompromising connection between our love for Jesus and our obedience of Jesus. We love Jesus because of what he's done, but then he then also invites us into a way of living that demands our obedience. There, there is a demand on us. And this is really important because we don't want anyone to come into Christianity thinking that all you have to do is just say the sinner's prayer, invite Jesus to love you, and that is the depth of Christianity because that leaves us as shallow, lousy disciples. But Jesus actually invites us into a new way of living and th therefore he has, he has the guts to say to, to us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is also coming back to the really key commandment that Jesus is giving to us and um, in, in the upper room discourse. Do you remember? He says, a new commandment I give to you. Who remembers that? We spoke about it last week. Someone remember. No one. Shout it out. A new command I give to you. You love one another as I have loved you. In other words, if we love Jesus, you will, we will keep his commandments. And his commandment, one of the key ones, is love one another. Loving one another is not a choice that we have. It's the command that we live out. 
And sometimes I think because of uh, the way that our world works, we think that love is, um, is, is, is not real if I, have to, if I have to do it. Think about that. If I have to love you, it's not really love. It's some kind of weird service or what, what would you call it? It's a tolerance of one another. No, no, Jesus says... To, if we love him, we keep his commandments, and then he commands us to love one another. And see, I think we get the idea of love wrong when we think that it comes out of our emotions rather than it comes out of who we are, what we've received in Jesus. We don't love because we have got so much love for people that it's just overflowing. We love because we understand that we are all beggars who have found bread. Remember, we talked about this last week. We know that in and of ourselves, love is something that we are craving and desiring, and we have found it in Jesus himself. And so we learn to love one another to the point that hopefully people will find Jesus for themselves because we're just sharing the bread that we have received from Jesus. So go get your own bread. That's how we love people. But we choose to love and we maybe discipline ourselves to love because we're commanded to. Let me put this in another way. Journeying with a child, being a parent is highly demanding in that when I am low in energy, when I am stressed because of work, when I don't feel like it, I still have to love my child. It, it, that's, that's, that's love. Love is not when I am a perfect parent. Love is the fact that I choose to love Sam. And yes, when I talk about it, I want to love Sam, but hey, I'm human and sometimes I don't like people and that's just how we go. Do I like Sam all the time? No. Do I love him and therefore do I put some of that aside? Yes. Do I stuff up and make mistakes with my own son? 100%, nearly all the time. But does that make me an unloving parent because I don't do the right things or because I don't feel like I love him? No, because it's ultimately a choice to hold this relationship together. All right, but Jesus understands that this has gone quiet, and this is Jesus' fault for giving us such a tough um, command. But then he goes on in verse 16 and says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, so. Jesus has said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father to give you a helper. So Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and you'll probably struggle with it. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments perfectly, and if you ever stuff up, you're a terrible Christian who I will reserve and redraw my love and my blood, and you're now a sinner who is just left to your crappy hell. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, you love me, you keep my commandments, and you know what? You need help. You need help, and I'm sending you help. <laughs> Who says, thank you, Jesus? Who says, uh, oh, wow, I thought that I needed to do this by myself? No, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper. Now, the word helper here uh, in the Greek is called the paraclete, P-A-R-A. K-L-E-T-E, paraclete, um, and it comes from the word parakaleo, which means one who is called alongside, which means an encourager or an advocate. Now, um, in um, the whole of the Bible, the word paraclete appears five times, and every single one of those times is found in the upper room discourse. So this is a very key thing that Jesus is wanting his disciples to know. Remember that this, this conversation, this discourse he's having with his disciples is basically telling them, I am going away, so you be ready, and this is how you're going to live. So one of the key things about living without physical Jesus is the paraclete. But when we translate it, it's a bit of a difficult word. And so I'm, um, if you can throw up the verse again, Joe, um, 
Uh, in translation of helper, this is found in the ESV. If you use the NIV Bible, another translation, it, it changes, not changes, but it, it has chosen the word counselor. And then if you go to another translation, you will find the word the advocate. And there's all of these different words. Why? Because the paraclete is quite difficult to um, explain. Now, in the usual, uh, in the everyday secular usage of the word paraclete, it actually was a legal advisor, a person who could be actually walking with you as you go through a legal uh, uh, situation and helping you understand the law, your rights, and how you're to behave. Now, Beck and I recently have had a brush with the law. Beck did some really... No, Beck didn't do... <laughs> Uh, but we had an issue with a neighbor and we needed to go through the court system to get some resolution. And let me tell you something. The court system is not tailored to your everyday life. The way that it's set up, if you go to the courts, you first go in and you stand in front of a board and they say you have to find your name. And it's like you're finding a name out of literally 150, 200 names and you're like, is this in, in alphabetical order? And you know where we found our name? It wasn't on the board. It was on a few pieces of paper that were tacked at the bottom of this board. I'm not even joking. And so we were like, we were looking at this board for ages and I was like, let's go look at those pieces of paper. And so we didn't even know about that, by the way. We had a lawyer tell us to go look for the board. And so we, we just walked in and we we're like, what in the world have we walked into? We went Went there and then we went upstairs and then we uh, they said you needed to check in and and because of what was going on we were really worried because we thought that the our neighbor who we we're having trouble with would, could rock up and we would be left in this waiting room together uh, which didn't happen the first time but she was actually there the second time anyway long story short the legal system is a minefield and it's a maze and you know what would have been really nice and helpful? To have a lawyer describe and help us to understand our rights. And one other thing about employing a lawyer that would have been really helpful to us is that people with lawyers get to go see the magistrate first. Without a lawyer, they go, oh, you're not paying as much money to be here, so you can wait. Terrible but necessary, but terrible, but necessary. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture that God's legal system, in inverted com commas, is that terrible. But what I'm trying to explain to us is that when we are walking into situations where we actually are trying to work out what our rights and responsibilities are, even in Western Australia, it's quite difficult to fully understand all of those things without someone whose expertise is the law. How much more would it be great for us to actually have a paraclete, a legal advisor, walk us through what life is meant to be like in the kingdom of God? We think sometimes that Jesus saves me and there's going to be this automatic download of exactly how the kingdom works. You get, I, I, have, I struggle in understanding my rights and responsibilities, and that's what the Holy Spirit is there for. And therefore, Jesus calls him um, the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth, because the helpers, um, the paraclete's responsibility is to teach us truth, is to show us truth. Why do we need the paraclete? We need a paraclete because we are entering into a new way of living. And a paraclete helps us to understand and to live out that new way. And that way shows us the commands of God and how living in it brings us life. And so when we read this and when, we, uh, when you're looking at this again and you look at the word helper or counselor advocate, one of the problems with um, our interpretations and translations is that it doesn't always carry the full weight. And so sometimes modern Christianity has come to the Holy Spirit as though he is a servant to us rather than a legal helper, a legal witness that is to show us truth. No, let us... Uh, respectfully understand that the Holy Spirit is an expert on the things of God. 
And what He's doing by coming alongside us is to encourage us and to exhort us into living the way that God has called us to. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments and you will have a person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit living with you and in you to help you understand those commands and how to live it out. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, there's something really interesting because in verse 17, uh, Jesus says, Even the whole spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And that sometimes is a little bit tough. It's like, why is Jesus saying that there, the, there are people that cannot receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's what it sounds like. So maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if I got the Holy Spirit. I don't hear the Holy Spirit. And, and you're going, maybe it's because I'm part of the world and God is not allowing me to. Now, the word world that we see here is the Greek word cosmos. And whenever the word cosmos is used in the New Testament, it's not talking about literally um, the earth but is, uh, and the people in it, but it's talking about the systems and structures that are set up against God. And so necessarily then, if the Holy Spirit teaches us about the systems and structures of the kingdom and how to live with God, then if you are wanting to live against God, you're not going to receive the Holy Spirit. The moment you receive the Holy Spirit, you are in the kingdom. Make sense? And so that's what this verse is all about. But Jesus really gives his disciples this um, really strong confidence. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the assurance that we can have, that if we even believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to you and is with you and is in you. And we're going to keep talking about that soon, but we do need to keep talking about the rest of this um, passage. So verse 18. Oh, how have I got to 11 o'clock already? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So what's Jesus saying here? Now, Jesus has just said, you're going to have this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Yep. And you're, we are supposed to go, wow, which, by the way, I didn't really hear many people saying, wow. Um, but we're supposed to go, wow, but for the disciples, they had this issue because Jesus himself was going to depart. And so they were still struggling. So Jesus actually understands their struggle, and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. He knows that the three-year ministry that he had done with them would make it seem like him going away was leaving them as destitute orphans. He recognizes that, and he then speaks into that. So Jesus isn't one who's just saying, obey, 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 you need to get this right. No, no, no. he intimately and is aware of our needs and where we're coming from. And so he says, I will come to you. And that is a statement that theologians say has a double meaning. Jesus was going to be resurrected and show himself. And then there's also going to be his ascension where he goes away again. And we will all be waiting for him to come again. And he says, I will come to you. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And this is Jesus saying that I'm going to die. And then from there, the people of the world will not see me anymore, but I'm going to show myself to you. And this is, um, this is a really key thing. When you see me resurrected, this is what Jesus is saying, um, you will know this because I live, you also will live. So this is a huge thing. In Christianity, we don't follow the Bible because it fully makes sense and is awesome, even though it is, but because of the central aspect of the Bible, which is that Jesus came, claimed to be God, was crucified by human beings, and resurrected on the third day. The resurrection makes every single claim in this Bible necessary for our uh, lives as Christians. Without the resurrection, all the promises that Jesus makes about going to prepare a place and coming back, it's left as fluff. 
So Jesus actually tells his disciples, this is the key part. When I come back to you, you will know this is true. And the fact that all the disciples then uh, gave themselves, gave their lives for Jesus, and many of them recorded the words that we have in the Bible, is proof that they saw Jesus again and were willing to then sacrifice everything. Why? Because they have found God. Because I live, you also will live. And so they gave their every lives away because they knew that Jesus had promised a greater, more amazing life than anything we could ever comprehend. All right? Verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you, and you in me, and I in you. What's Jesus saying? When I resurrect, then you will see that all of this is true. And the fact of the matter is, I am God, and I am bringing you with me. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he comes back to this commands thing. You might not like this, but he says, whoever has my commands, uh, commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so we again have this sense of obedience, keeping the commands, and loving Jesus. And sometimes when we cherry pick of the Bible and we take that little verse, it totally looks like this. If I am good at keeping Jesus's commands, then Jesus will love me and the Father will love me. Which leads us to think, if I'm terrible at keeping the commandments, what happens? God doesn't love me. Right, And so we can cherry pick and see that. But that's a terrible reading of that verse. Why? Because Jesus just said that I'm going to prove my love for you by going to die on a cross for you. I want to give you life and therefore I'm going to the cross. And so Jesus is not saying that um, if we love him first, then we will receive love. Rather, Jesus has already told his disciples, I already love you, but then he's talking about us receiving and living in love. D.A. Carson calls this the circle of love. I think that's where the Lion King stole things from. Uh, but this is the circle of love. What is the circle of love? Jesus loves us. And when we receive and understand that love, something should be sparked off in us to love him back. And when we recognize that I love Jesus, what then happens is a desire or an understanding that I am to obey his commands. And when I obey his commands, not just go, oh, yes, I have received Jesus' love and I love him back. How many people know that you can say to a person that you want to marry, I really love you, um, but I'm not going to buy you a ring. I'm not going to do anything. You just have to trust that I love you. How many people know that is a toxic person that you kick far away from your life? No, say, if you love me, prove it. Put some money in it. Give me a ring for my finger. And I, if you're a girl in this room, and I've counseled many girls, if the guy's not willing to come and show you and demonstrate his love in a practical way, the guy's a dropkick. Like, seriously, now, understand that you're not asking for a dowry of 50 camels and, and a mansion. Like, be practical about it. He, the, the level of his commitment might be a, a part of his means and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, Jesus is saying that when we receive his love, we respond by wanting to love him. And how do we love him? We love him by obeying his commands. When we love him by obeying his commands, we are brought into this place where we receive more love. This is the cycle that Carson is talking about. I wonder how many of us are only at a surface level because we've not engaged in the cycle, in the circle of love. We are not coming deeper and deeper in love with Jesus because we are holding back from obeying his commands in some way, shape, or form in our lives. But when we trust Jesus and we obey him, even though it is hard, Remember, Jesus already said, you need a helper in order to obey my commands. Jesus knows that this is not going to be easy. But when we try and we engage in it, that is when we are brought deeper and deeper into God's love. I wonder if there are some people here that need to consider what is my next step of obedience. Or 
have you stopped obeying Jesus because you thought that that's the extent of his love? It is a human thing to only obey and to do things that is worth our while. And that's why Jesus himself says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. So maybe there's a stuckness in you in that you think that you don't need that much love from Jesus. But this circle of love helps us to understand where is the stoppage? Is the stoppage in us receiving love from Jesus? In us understanding our need for a saviour? In us being so independent that we think that we can work it out all by ourselves? Is that where we stop? Or is it because we think that we don't have any responsibilities and that we're all good? I'm happy with the level of love that I have already received. When I'm reading this and I'm reading about the circle of love, it hits me and I'm going like, have I actually experienced the fullness of God's love? Have I actually experienced the fullness of God's life? Or have I just been so contented and easily pleased that I have stopped? And it brings me to a place of wanting more. Now we've got to keep moving. Verse 22, very interesting verse. Judas, not Iscariot, Iscariot had already left, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me... <laughs> What are you talking about, Jesus? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word you hear is not mine but the Father who sent me. So Judas had this problem. Judas had been hearing what Jesus was saying about showing himself and coming back to the disciples and showing that he is the resurrected one which proves that he is the Messiah. And so Judas was going, hang on, Instead of me needing to love other people, what if Jesus, you just made a big show and proved to everyone that you're the Messiah? Just like maybe fly across the sky, shoot laser out of your eyes, walk through walls, you know, do something. I literally had a conversation with someone, a skeptic the other day, who said, if Jesus really is God, why didn't he show himself to more people? Why did he only show himself to the disciples? Why did he only confine it? By the way, he showed himself to about 300 people, 300 believers. It wasn't no one, but there was this point. It's like, come on, but if you really are God, why are you not making it easier for people to recognize you are the Messiah? It's a question we have to look into. But guess what? John supplies us with that answer. And that's why Jesus' response is... If you love me, you obey my commands. He <laughs> comes back to that. And so what is going on? Well, remember where the upper room discourse sits in the book of John. It is after the segment on the seven signs that John records. Jesus did many more. So remember, we were talking about this. Jesus had already perfectly shown that he is the Messiah. He'd done it. What did he do? He walked on water. He calmed a storm. He turned water into wine. He raised the flipping dead. And yet there were people that still didn't believe. And so Judas saying, come on, do more spectacular signs. Jesus is saying, I've done the spectacular signs. And people still do not believe. You see, there is a problem with us as humans that sometimes we want God to prove that he is God. And we have in our mind that if God doesn't prove himself as a good God in this way, in the way that I want, he's not God. And so we will find ways to like tear apart the Bible and say that, no, that, that's not really what happened. Well, most of these things, like there is a heavy burden of proof that most of these things, well, all of these things in some way, shape or form happen. But yet we will still skeptically look at it and tear it apart. Because we want God to appear to us in the way that we want God to appear to us. Rather than see that God has appeared to us and that God is working in us. But Jesus, instead of saying, come on, man, I've already done that. What does Jesus say? He points us back to what is going to prove to others that Jesus is the Messiah. If we have love for one another. And that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. 
I'm, like, I'm with the camp of Jesus. If you shot laser out of your eyes and were flying across the sky, many more people would believe. But what would people then believe? That their God is some kind of weird superhero that is going to fight the aliens for them. Rather than the God who demands our obedience to his command to love. And that God is saying, you know what? If you love me, you will live in a community with one another. And I think that is something that our Western culture has severely lost. We think that our Christian faith is about me and Jesus. No, Jesus is saying it's not about me and you alone. It's about all the people in your life as well. Yes, Jesus is the source, and we're going to talk about that next week, and we need to come to him first. But we need to have our eyes checked. We're not looking for the pie in the sky. We're looking for Jesus who has already lived, died, and resurrected and is telling us, love others as I have loved you. And so that's where D.A. Carson says, this is an uncompromising connection between our love for Jesus and our obedience. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus wants to do on this earth when we as a community learn to love one another, which means loving, loving and being loved. It's both ways. It's loving, yes, and I think many people do that exceptionally well, but also learning to be loved is both ways. Well, we need to finish off. Um, verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper... The Holy Spirit is the second of the five instances of the paraclete being mentioned. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, some people have again cherry-picked this verse to make it sound like we do not need churches, we do not need pastors, we do not need teachers, we do not need mentors, we do not need any tools. I literally, one day I was teaching the Bible college and someone said, I do not, and I was talking about different tools that we can use that are free, that are online. And it's been said, I don't need any of that. The Holy Spirit will teach me. And I was like, well, you paid money to be here. And then now you're dissing me to my face. And yes, I know I'm not the Holy Spirit. He's better looking. But what's this all about? Well, that is taking uh, this verse completely out of context. Jesus is speaking, and I think that this is one of those instances. A lot of what Jesus is teaching here is stuff that we as modern-day disciples can take, but this, I think, is specifically to the original disciples because it starts off with these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, and then the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance all that Jesus had already taught them. Yep. So unless you tell me that you had Jesus walking with you for three years and teaching you about the kingdom, the Holy Spirit ain't bringing nothing to your remembrance. So what is that two verses supposed to be about? It's for us to have confidence that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all true accounts where the Holy Spirit brought to the disciples' minds at different times the teaching that they were going to pass on to the next generation so that when the time came, they would write these things down so that we have a record. And then now, yes, we have the Holy Spirit helping us, but He's also called us to live in a community where we are wrestling with and learning the things that have been written. Is the Holy Spirit still our teacher, still our guide? Yes, but not in the same way as the original disciples. Make sense? But then Jesus goes on to say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus' peace is real, the cosmos's peace is fake. Um, and what we also need to know is that the word peace is a very loaded word, especially for Hebrew people. The word uh, peace is the word shalom, and many people would have heard of it. It is more than just a feeling of restfulness, but it's a feeling, it's a sense of wholeness in God. All right, And this was used both as a greeting and as a farewell. When Jewish people would meet, they would say shalom. That, that's their good day. And as their uh, uh, see you later, they would say shalom. Shalom be to you. They want God's peace to be with you as they come to you and God's peace to be with you as they leave you. So when Jesus says this here, there is this kind of like cheekiness that I read into it because Jesus is saying hello and farewell all at the same time. So it says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
Uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus once again acknowledges that he understands this is a tough thing for his disciples to grapple with. But then, here comes a really interesting verse. Verse 28, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus, a few occasions already, has said, Peace, do not let your hearts be troubled. But then he switches gear in this verse, and then he says, If you love me, you would have rejoiced rather than letting your hearts be troubled. Interesting, right? Jesus actually said, If you love me, you would not have let your hearts be troubled, but instead you would have rejoiced. That's kind of weird. And then he goes on to say, Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Quick side note, not the main thing I want to focus on. People, again, cherry-pick this verse and say, see, Jesus is just a human because he's lesser than the Father. So the Father is God and Jesus is not God. There's a terrible reading of this because the whole upper room discourse, Jesus said, I and the Father am one, right? We've already read that just today as well. So that is not what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying here? Why is he saying, if you love me, you would have rejoiced, for I'm going back to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, what we need to realize is that Jesus has said clearly time and time again, the plan of redemption has been the Father's. The Father is the one that came up with the plan of redemption. And in the Trinity, they're all God. They're one person. Uh, sorry, there are three persons, one God. Um, and we one day might talk about that. Um, but the Father is the one that came up with the plan, if you will. And Jesus is the one that is acting it out. Jesus says, I do nothing that the Father hasn't asked of me. I only do what I uh, have been told by the Father. Jesus is serving the Father. That's his position as the Son. And so what he's saying here is that the Father is the one that's given him the mission, and because he has been sent, he humbled himself. Philippians talks about this, that Jesus humbled himself to live his life, to die for our sins, and now he's going back. So when Jesus says, for I'm going to the Father, it means that Jesus is about to accomplish his mission and he gets to go back. He gets to go back. This is like Frodo throwing the ring into the flames of Mordor and being able to go back to his old life without the burden of all this stuff. We should be like, no, Frodo, stay in Mordor. That's not what we... Some, I just lost a whole bunch of people. I'm like, no, Mordor sucks. Where the Father is, is great. And Jesus is saying, I have accomplished my mission. I humbled myself to be with you. And if you realize what it cost me, you would say, go back to the Shire. Go back to where you truly belong. This is actually kind of an interesting verse because, yeah, I think I would like Jesus to be here. How many of you would like to be able to have Jesus on speed dial? It's like, hey, I'm struggling today, Jesus. Can you come and pray for me? It would be nice. But Jesus is saying there is a place that I'm meant to be. And you, because of what you want, you don't see the value of that. And Carson writes this, and it's going to be hard-hitting, and I want to finish on this. He says, the failure of these first disciples, sad to say, has often been repeated in the history of the church, where Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows, and maybe in that way their own desires and hopes than to the things that bring their master joy. Jesus wasn't out to shame his disciples. 
But maybe what he was saying was to also teach them, come on, lift up your eyes. You're looking at yourself and your own purposes. You're looking at things the way that you want it to be. But I'm showing you that what I'm doing is actually greater. And when you understand and you trust that what I'm doing is greater, then you're going to have joy. I wonder how many of us are living with sorrows and griefs that have pierced our hearts, true losses that we hold, but we hold them greater than understanding that the plans of God is bigger, is better, and that He is alive and at work and is preparing a place for us. And we are so focused on having those things dealt with that we forget Jesus' commands. And we forget that Jesus is at work in our lives. I think that we need a renewal of our sight. I think we need a renewal of coming to the Holy Spirit who is teaching us Jesus' truth so that we can walk our lives with joy. Because yes, there are trials that trouble us. There are things that we want answers for. There are things that we have lost that really hurt. There are things that we were supposed to get in a perfect world, but guess what? We're not in a perfect world and we struggle and we hold and we sometimes, I've done this before, held this in front of Jesus and said, Jesus, what about this? If you loved me, you would have dealt with that. And Jesus said, I loved you and I died on the cross for you and you're still asking for me to do more to prove my love for you. It's a hard word. It's a hard word when we haven't received Jesus' love is a hard word when we haven't actually reconciled that God actually knows better than I do and I'm willing to trust Him. It's a hard word when I'm in a place where my griefs and sorrows are front and center in my life. But it's a freeing word when I come to Jesus and I say, you actually have the words of life. Where else will I go to actually make sense of this world? to have an anchor in times of troubles. Where else will I be able to find peace and true peace? Some of us need to stop deluding ourselves with the ideology, the rhetoric, the, the voice in your mind that's saying, God doesn't really love me because he hasn't dealt with this. I pray that today I'm being a conduit to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life. You need to give that pain to Jesus to allow him to heal it. And you need to start living in a way that brings you life, brings you deeper into God's love. Not at a shallow level, well, he's dealt with my eternity, now I can do the rest of my life the way that I want to. No, there is an existence that God calls you into that truly brings joy, truly brings peace. And when we come to Jesus and he is the one that is our comfort and our strength, things start to change. Let's not fail our God by placing our griefs and our sorrows as more important than our master's joy. If we can get the band up this morning. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And I'll ask the Father and he will send you a helper. This morning, I really sense that there are people that are wanting to. There is a deep desire in you to actually live the way that God's asking you to. But there's something that's stopping you. Can I just put forward that maybe it's because you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, we read, first really came and baptized the disciples on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. But the Bible also teaches us that um, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that is ongoing, is constant, is fresh, is new. It's not meant to be a one-off, but it's meant to be a source that we keep coming back to. It's an experience that we're meant to have, not just an understanding that, yes, I have the Holy Spirit. No, it's something that you're meant to experience and know without a shadow of doubt that God is with you. If you haven't had that experience, if there's something in you that still doubts, or if there's a dryness in your soul and you are struggling with that desert inside, 
inside of you, then maybe you need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to come back to that place and say, God, I need your help. I need your truth and I need your life. If that is you this morning, I want to pray with you because I believe, I believe and I'm, I am certain that as we live for Jesus, he has already died for us and he then pours out his love in a fresh and a new way for each and every person. If you're in a place where you're kind of getting to this realization that you need Jesus perfect, perfect, the Holy Spirit helps us to, to receive the fullness of salvation. And so can we stand this morning? I'm going to invite people up to the front to be able to pray for people because the Bible teaches us to lay hands on people, um, which is simply just literally just putting our hands on you as an impartation of the Holy Spirit. I don't know why God has chosen it to be in that way. Maybe it's because so that you have to be in proximity with someone else, so that someone else from the community of God is there with you, standing with you, praying with you, believing with you for a fresh touch from God. And so I'm going to close in prayer, but I believe that there are people in this room that need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it will be my privilege to stand with you. It will be our team's privilege to stand with you, to pray with you, and to uh, see God do what only God can do in your life. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much that you have demonstrated your love by going to the cross that you demonstrated your love by even just humbling yourself to come and be here and to serve us in the way that you did. But I will say thank you that you're not leaving us like orphans, but rather you are calling us to something new, a new way of relating, a new way of life with you. And so God, I pray for every person here uh, that is in a place of wanting this renewal and this revival in their lives. I pray for more of the Holy Spirit, more of you. God, for those of us who have placed our griefs and our sorrows front and center in our lives, asking you about how you're going to deal with it, I pray for the courage to trust that in your time you will lead, uh, you'll bring health and healing and your shalom peace into our our lives, God. I pray for the courage to respond to you, to ask for more of you each and every day in our lives. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, church. You can head off for morning tea, but man, I really want to see God do something fresh and new in your life. So if you want prayer, come on forward. Thank you so much, church. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.